This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, so good to be together with you. I'm Pastor Ron. If you're new or visiting with us today, I want to welcome you here, as well as those of you who are joining us at Church Online, Church at Home. It's great to be together, and we have been digging into the book of Esther over the last couple of weeks. And so if you got a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Esther chapter 4, and I'll do my best to kind of catch up to speed if you've uh, missed any of the weeks with us. But really, what you're coming to is a conversation about purpose. We've been talking for the last couple of weeks about what our purpose in life is. It's one of the greatest needs for people to find is what their purpose is. And uh, everyone has one. See, every single person has a purpose, a mission, a God assignment, and the trick is to try to figure out what yours is. And then once you've figured out your purpose, to then have what I call a Nike moment, to actually go out and to do it. And Esther has been kind of our case study, our example, and you're going to see today how she steps into this moment that God has been preparing her for. But I want to start off with an inspiring story. It was inspiring to me, partly because this story was based in the 80s. That was kind of my childhood, and I've gone on record as saying I think the 80s is the greatest decade. I mean, just watch Stranger Things. It's given us incredible flashbacks to great music by Kate Bush, all those things. But you probably haven't heard of this story, the story of Larry Walters, also known as Lawn Chair Larry. This guy inspires me because he determined that his purpose in life was to fly. And he didn't have a pilot's license, so he did what he could. He got an aluminum lawn chair and rigged it up to 45 helium balloons. And on July 2nd of 1982, he took flight. <laughs> Glorious. 45 minutes. But in 45 minutes, he ascended to 16,000 feet of elevation. And then things began to go wrong because the winds drifted him over controlled airspace at Long Beach Airport in California. No worries. Larry was prepared for this. He had packed along several ham sandwiches, a couple of beers, and a BB gun. And his plan was just simply to pick off a few of the helium balloons and then just drift back down to the ground until he, got tang until he dropped his BB gun. And then he got tangled up in electrical wires. Air traffic control was not too happy with him. He was unharmed, but as soon as his boots hit the ground, he was arrested. He had about 15 minutes of fame and did tours all through the uh, late-night talk shows. And they asked him, why'd you do this? Why would you do such a thing? Let me read to you his purpose. He says, it was something I had to do. I had this dream for 20 years, and if I hadn't done it, I think I would have ended up in a funny farm. Now, you think about Larry for a moment, and maybe my question is, where's your lawn chair, right? Like, what crazy idea have you been kind of thinking about, dreaming about? Maybe God's been challenging to figure out, how do I rig this thing together and find purpose in my life? Now, let me pause there. I don't think Larry is the best example but Esther certainly is. We've been studying her story, and you're going to see this young woman step into her moment. And if you were here last week, I really tried to convey how Esther has had a hard life. Uh, she's made choices, and she's had things kind of passed down to her that have made her life very difficult. Uh, she's a young woman, 
She's an orphan. Her parents died. We don't know when. She's been raised by her cousin, Mordecai, who sometimes seems to be a help and sometimes has kind of put her in a position that makes it very difficult for her in this life. She's a Jew, and that's really important to the story. She's actually been hiding her identity. In fact, uh, she would have been exiled from her homeland in Jerusalem. She had been taken captive uh, when the Babylonians conquered, and now the Persians are reigning, and she's in the Persian Empire. She's, in fact, in their capital city, hiding in her identity. But she's had a few things going for her. She's, she's beautiful. <laughs> and so she enters this contest to become the new queen. It's the Miss Persian pageant. And it requires that she joins the king's harem, that she undergoes 12 months of beauty treatments, all to prepare her for her one night, her one date with the king. And she sleeps with the king, and she becomes the new queen. But life is not a fairy tale for Esther. In fact, the king, her now husband, King Xerxes, who I've been calling King Jerxes, i, I got to stop doing that, uh, is a real piece of work because we learned that Xerxes kind of has, he has his own mission, and it's to make himself look good, and he is obsessed with appearance. Uh, he cares about what he looks like. He cares about especially the women that are going to be around him look like, and he's just gone through this, this season of just wanting everything. He throws these all-night parties at the palace, raves at the palace, unrestrained drinking. If you had to describe him, you would say he has no purpose other than to fulfill every carnal desire that he wants. And we're looking at this Persian empire, and I've been saying for the past couple weeks that it's a godless empire in moral decay. And I've been trying to kind of bring us this bridge between what was written then and what we see now, and I see lots of similarities in our world today, though the times have changed. And things are about to get a whole lot worse for Esther. It's about to go to kind of the next level uh, of crisis for her because just before what we're about to read, uh, she finds out, she's going to find out that there's an edict that's been given by one of the king's right-hand men. Uh, his right-hand man is a guy by the name of Haman, and Haman has this personal issue with Mordecai. And he, rather than going to Mordecai and sorting out the differences as we should do with one another, he takes it very personally, and he decides not only must Mordecai die, but all the people of Mordecai's nationality must die. All the Jews must die. And he gets the king in kind of a, a drunken state to sign off on this edict to where it's essentially like Nazi Germany. All the Jews are going to be annihilated. And Mordecai finds out about this. It's terrible. And he's trying to convey this information to Esther in the palace. And this is kind of the exchange you're reading about here in Esther chapter 4. So let's start in Esther chapter 4, verse 1. It says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province in which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, this is kind of interesting because Mordecai is outside the palace. He's on the street, and Esther is inside the palace. And Mordecai knows that if there's any chance for his people, he's got to get her attention. 
But I want you to try to walk through the streets of the capital, Susa, at this point. I mean, can you imagine an edict like this going out? Where it basically states that if you're a Jew on such and such a date, you're going to be executed. I mean, you kind of read in the text, there's mourning, there's wailing, there's weeping. And this would have happened not just in the capital, but this would have gone on throughout the entire kingdom. In fact, this map kind of gives you an idea of how expansive. In fact, this was essentially the known world at that time. It would have stretched all the way from China all the way to northern Africa. And there's Susa, kind of the, the Dallas Cowboy star right in the middle there. But imagine this edict. In every town, someone would have came and posted a note. If you're a Jew, the date has been set you will be executed on this day. All throughout this region, terror and fear just gripping the people. And Mordecai, again, is trying to get the attention of the queen. She's in the palace, and the palace, by my reading and study, would have actually been a city inside of the city. And so if you were part of the royal family, you wouldn't actually ever have to go down to the street among the peasants. You had kind of a self-contained city inside of your palace. So she's inside, Mordecai's on the street, and they kind of work through an intermediary, kind of a, an attendant of Esther's, goes back and forth, kind of relaying the conversation from the street to the palace, picking back up in verse 6. His name is Hathak. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence and to beg for mercy and to plead with him for the people. So again, Mordecai is trying to relay this information. Hey, you got to get this news to Esther. And Esther, you must stop this massacre. This is going to wipe our people out completely. And again, Esther has been hiding. She hasn't let anyone know that she's a Jew up until this point. And here we have it, these, these people suffering. Now again, the Jews are the Israelites. These are God's chosen people. This is actually the line and lineage of which Jesus would come, God's son would come into the world. We would actually uh, theologically call, call them at this point, we would call them the remnant. They've left Israel, they're now in exile, and they're just kind of hanging on by a thread, as you can see. And Esther, if you don't beg, if you don't plead with the king, we're all dead. So now I want you to see Esther's response, again, back and forth through her attendant, Hathak, dropping down to verse 11 and finishing up the story. It says, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. This is Esther now. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent back this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews 
who were in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Probably words that you've either heard read before or maybe you've seen on artwork or on, on paintings. These words of Esther, and if I perish, I perish. They sort of become her battle cry. But she does not get to this point easy. Do you notice how there's this exchange beforehand where there's some resistance from Esther to step into this moment of purpose? I mean, really what she's saying is, Mordecai, you think you know what's going on, but you're on the streets, and I'm in the palace, and it's a whole different game in the palace. In fact, she tries to relate to him that you don't just go to the king. You know, how silly is that? You can't just approach the king. He's got this rule. It's a really good rule, right? If you go to the king and he doesn't extend his royal scepter to you, then you're dead meat. Off with your head. And then she reveals kind of her real problem, right? I mean, Esther is the queen. I mean, she should have access to the king, her husband, at any time. And she says these words, and I've said in this series, you have to know that the Bible is not PG. <laughs> the Bible is, is R. I mean, it's real. And you got to kind of read between the lines here when she says, the king hasn't called me in 30 days. Now, you know a little bit about the king, right? I mean, he's not the type of guy that spends his nights alone, if you know what I mean, right? And he's got an entire harem full of women. And Esther is saying, I may be the queen by title, but we really aren't on the same page at all. He hasn't called to me in fact, I don't think he really has much interest in me anymore. I read through this text so many times this week, and and I I do that often, but this time, I I was reading through the text, and every time I I got to this point in the story, I just, I felt this pit in my stomach. Do you ever feel that for, for like, someone? Like, you you feel kind of like you hurt for them. And I think for Esther, what I was coming to is just seeing her life and how hard it's been, and And I think in this moment, I feel so bad for her because she's made choices, she's had choices made for her, and and I guess I would just say she's collected a lot of regrets. And I can just see this moment being so difficult. Where does my allegiance, where where do I fall on this? What's, What's left of me? Who am I? And it's in this moment, there's a a real crisis. In fact, all throughout this story, we're seeing kind of the the ways in which crisis is unfolding. There's all these reversals, right? I mean, in the first few pages of this book, it's all about the banquets and the parties and the feasts. And now there's this reversal. It's all about fasting. And in the first part of the book, it was all about, you know, beauty and opulence. And now it's about, like, sackcloth and ashes. And the first part of the book is all about the rich and the comfortable, and now, and now we're kind of coming to grips with the poor and the suffering. And, and I point that out because I think these become kind of the, the ways in which we need to pay attention. When we see these reversals happening in the currents of life around us, these, these become signs to watch for. That purpose is about to take root. That purpose for Esther is about to be born. She's carried these regrets, and she's going to have to do something with them. And Mordecai, he comes back with a, a really catchy response. Did you catch Mordecai's response? How, how would you like Mordecai for, his, for your cousin, right? I mean, do you hear what he says? He, he basically says to her that if you go to the king, you might lose your life. 
But if you don't go to the king, oh, you most definitely will lose your life. Meaning, you'll be outed. He will find out that you too are a Jew. And I think it's no stretch to see here that Mordecai, he's blackmailing her, right? I mean, you, you go and you risk the palace, you might lose the palace, sweetie. But if you don't go and risk the palace, oh, you are definitely losing the palace. And I got to tell you, I think this is a humbling point, not just for Esther. I think if you read this with, with eyes that want to grow in your faith, I think you have to look at this and you, you have to see it as if you have influence, if you have affluence, if you have a position, a place in which you've got to say, you've got something to say, and you don't use it, you will lose it. And that becomes the challenge for each and every one of us because we all have these moments. This is a good story, isn't it? I, I really like this story. I think the characters in the story are just so real. They've got real human tendencies, and, and there's kind of this plot that just keeps getting thicker and thicker, and, and someone is going to have to do something to break out of the cycle that we see going on in that day. But my question for you this morning is really, what does this teach us? You know, you might be here this morning, you might be, you know, great, thanks, Pastor. Yeah. So we're learning a story about a young orphan girl who has a moment and she steps into her moment. Big deal. And I'll give you a little spoiler alert. She does step into this moment. She says, if I perish, I perish. And that becomes her moment of stepping in and making change. She is used by God and God's people are saved. Sorry, spoiler alert. You can read the rest of the book. In fact, the way in which she goes about making changes inside of the palace is one of the most brilliant strategic ways in which I've ever seen anyone work. In fact, I've told you before, I think Esther is one of the smartest, most strategic books in the Bible, all because of what Esther does to kind of turn the tables on evil, on the evil Haman. But what does this teach us? And if she has for such a time as this, then what's our time? What are the ways in which we can step into our moments? And so I thought of a few things that I've been pulling from this story and trying to now live out as, as a person. And the first thing I want to talk about is I really want to talk about and distinguish between people and systems. Because we need to remember that we're called to always love people. And we're also called to work really hard at reforming systems. And I think sometimes maybe it's the heat of the argument, maybe it's the anger that we feel inside when we see injustice or we see something in the news or in our world today, is we, we forget and we don't separate. We actually bring together the people and the systems and we start to hate the systems, well, that was easy to do, but we begin to hate the people. And what we need to remember is, is God has called all people, and God has called us to love all people. And I'll just be honest, some people are hard to love, right? I mean, I know we're not the kind of church that normally says it, but some people are hard to love, right? Amen, pastor, right? You know, some people preach it, right? I mean, they're, they're hard to love, and you don't even know the person, right? And it's like, it's a challenge, and yet those people are the ones that we need to make sure we're loving. All people, people who are different from us, people who have different ideas about the way in which the world should work, people who are even part of the systems that are abusing and hurting others. We still must 
love people. I was remembering a conversation I had um, quite a long time ago with Ed Dobson, former pastor of Calvary. I didn't get to have a lot of conversations with him, but he, he always kind of had this way in which anytime I was around him, or even when I heard him speak, but especially when I had coffee with him, he would talk about how, you know, you know who your neighbor is, right? <laughs> because we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. You do know who your neighbor is, Ron, right? And I've thought about that, and I've thought about that since he's passed, and I've, I've kind of reflected on the fact that it's, it's kind of hard today to know who your neighbor is. I mean, not the one with the driveway next to you, but, but we live and we move in, in spaces that aren't just physical, they're digital, right? And so we have neighbors in the digital realm that are, are also needing our, our love and the mercy and the grace that we've been shown. And some people, they're a part of abusive system, and that just becomes the way they go. They go down with the system. In fact, you see that when you read through the rest of the story. You see that Haman is a part of a system of, of abuse and destroying people, and he, and he stays a part of that system. But that's not for us. It's instead for us to love people and to love them really well. In fact, the question I, I have for you this morning are, who are the people? Who are the hard people? that you're called to love around you. And by loving those people, you're actually helping to reform the systems that they're a part of. Maybe they're in your workplace. Maybe they're in your neighborhood. Maybe they're in the schools that you go to every day. And we're called to love them and to love them really, really well. This is a, a challenge because I think sometimes we, we kind of turn the magnifier and we look way out at the people in the world and we say, they're the problem, they're the issue. And, and where it needs to begin, if we have any hope of reforming systems, is, is to begin with loving the people close to us. And by no stretch uh, does that mean that we ignore people out there, but we need to start here. And so I want to talk to kind of the, the church for just a moment, because the Bible calls us to be a family, which means we should be the epitome, the best example of love, uh, by how we treat one another here in the church in the group of community that we are a part of every week. And so the question becomes not only who are the people you're supposed to love, but maybe even how well do you know the people around you? And how well are you loving just the person next to you? You do know your neighbor, right? I was thinking about just how, you know, I've been doing this for a number of years now, and I've seen people come and go in and out of the church, and it always breaks my heart when someone comes to the church and then leaves the church, and then you find out that really they, they left over some reason, and it was important to them, and I'm not here to judge, but, but I know as a pastor now that the reason someone would come and then go is because the system of loving them broke down, that, that they weren't loved and heard and valued in the way in which they needed to be. And so we want to be about the love of all people starting right here. In fact, Sean and I have uh, just had this beautiful insight into um, just what it means when a church can love each other well, because we've received a lot of love from the community over the years. And this is modeled for us, and we're trying to model it as well. And in fact, um, we kind of saw a glimpse of this in, in a group of friends that we've had for a long time, uh, over close to almost 20, almost 30 years, we've known some of these friends. And they became our friends right after we got married some 28 years ago, some of them we knew before then, and, and we just invited them into a little small group, a little Bible study. And we thought, you know, this would be great. We're all, like, young married. We don't have any kids. You know, let's study the Word together, have some fellowship, have some community, and then every month we met after that, it found out that someone in the group was going to have a baby. So we were not just young marrieds, but we were young marrieds with kids, and now you know, 20 plus years later, we've watched these kids grow up, and, 
And we still get together and we see each other and we, we can see how love has kind of held this group together. It hasn't always been easy. In fact, I see purpose lived out in, in some of these people and the challenge to live out their purposes. There's been a lot of hardship among this group. In fact, we got together this summer and I was sitting around the picnic table and I can almost just like go around the table and just pick out just the challenges that every person's been through. My one friend has battled cancer and my other friend lost her husband to a heart attack and the other friend lost uh, his spouse to a snowmobile accident. We've watched our kids grow up and kind of go in and out of faith and struggle with faith issues and struggle with identity issues. And, and all of that is just this great opportunity to be, to be loved, to be loved towards the people that God's placed around us. See, if you, if you want to defeat isolation, you must be loving. If you want to defeat ego and pride, you must be loving. And that's what God has called us to be. And that's what my hope is for Bridgeway, that we would be the most loving community of disciples that anyone ever meets. We must love people really well, and then in that love, reform the systems around us. Second thought we see in the story is that God is always at work. This is the crazy thing about this book, is you read through all these chapters in Esther, and the name God is never mentioned. It's so strange. It's such a different view of any other book. And it kind of shows you how far the people have drifted. This isn't like Moses getting kind of a direct conversation with God or Abraham being visited by God. This is God not ever once being mentioned. In fact, the closest you get to it is in this section of the book where Esther says to fast for me. Now, normally when you fast, you also pray. But this kind of shows you that the people are so far off track, they're not even fasting for God. They're fasting for Esther. And in this moment, it's important to see that just because God is not mentioned, it does not mean that he's absent. In fact, the reader by now should be picking up on this idea that God has been at work, kind of behind the scenes all along. It's almost as if Esther should wake up and say, you know, it's, is this really what's happening? Hmm. Do you think it's all because of Esther's beauty that she's in this position? Esther must be waking up to the reality. Is it is it really just coincidence that the king got rid of his first wife and I won his eye, I became the new queen? Is that all just random and happen chance? This has been God working through it all. Some of you might push back and you might say, wait a minute, Pastor, are you saying that you know, I've gotten to where, where I have and it's all been God? No, I clawed, I, I climbed, I used my talents. And I would simply say, you used talents that were given to you by God. In fact, I feel like I could say it every week that you are here, you are in the place you're in in life because of God's grace, because of the way in which God has covered you through it all. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Have you ever, you ever done something wrong, but it still turned out right? Let me say it differently. Have you ever said something and it was just wrong, but then somehow it still kind of worked out okay? Okay, welcome to my job as a pastor. I feel like I do this all the time, right? In fact, I saw something that was so interesting. In fact, um, one of my my uh, idols in athletics, uh, this guy, Michael Jordan, said something and truly in the moment meant well but kind of got it wrong. Michael Jordan was at a University of North Carolina basketball game, his alma mater, and he was trying to boost up the football team, which not coincidentally had just signed a contract to wear his Nike Air Jordan attire. But he's in this pep rally moment trying to get the football team all pumped up and he says, the ceiling is the roof. And the crowd erupted. And then afterwards, journalists and writers all kind of like got online and like, what did he really mean like by this? Like you got to kind of wonder, what did he mean? This is kind of like 
the phrase tiny shrimp. You got to think about it for a minute, right? I mean, if Jordan is trying to inspire these athletes, he kind of just told them that your ceiling is now capped. (laughs) You've kind of hit your roof. I think what he meant to say is your ceiling is the floor. You're just getting started. You're going to take off from here. But the crowd still erupted. The crowd still went crazy. And isn't that just like God to take something where we maybe miss the mark and still cover us and still use us and still get all the glory? See, this is the reminder that no celebrity, no athlete, not even a Bible character is really the hero of the story. Esther is valuable, but Esther points us to Jesus. She's a signpost that points the way to follow Jesus, who the Bible says we were made in his image and in his likeness. And her emphatic words, if I perish, I perish, those are not our battle cry. But those are our reminder that your life is not your own. You were bought and you were paid for at a price. Esther, for the very first time, could now go before the king. She could go before the throne of power and she could mediate justice for her people. Does that sound at all familiar? Is there anyone else that went before the throne, not the throne of power, but the throne of grace? And on our behalf, mediated, stood between us and a holy God to offer us forgiveness. That is none other than Jesus, our mediator. And he's the one that didn't just say, if I perish, Jesus did perish to offer you as a ransom for many, the forgiveness for all of your sins. That was his purpose. What's yours? If you would bow your heads in prayer with me, please. God, I just thank you so much for this story. I thank you for the ways in which you just remind us time and time again that no matter where we go, no matter where we run, we are ultimately yours. And our goal is to come back and to come back into the loving arms of our Savior Jesus. God, I just pray that everyone within the sound of my voice would hear these words this morning and would step into the love that you've ushered and sent down for each one of us, that we would receive Jesus as our Lord and our Savior and as our friend. And for anyone who does that, Lord, just to then leave this place and to be the love that our world so desperately needs. God, I pray that we would know our purpose and it would be rooted and established in your love and your grace and your mercy. So we sing to you now and we give you all of our worship. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide. 